Hello, and welcome to another episode of For the Love of Sports. My name is Michael Raziel, and today my special, special guest is Mark Beal. He is the Assistant Professor of Practice and Public Relations at Rutgers School of Communications and Information. Wow, that's a lot of fun. Mark is an awesome guy. I've known him for a few months now, and I'm very grateful I had the opportunity to put, get him on the show and let him share some of his wisdom and insight through working at one of the biggest sports PR agencies in the world for over 25 years. So this episode is an absolute blast learning about Mark's background, how he got into sports, what he did with it, and now after writing about five books with one that just came out, please enjoy this episode with Mark Beal. Today, my special guest on For the Love of Sports, I have my friend Mark Beal. He is, and here we go, everybody, the Assistant Professor of Practice in Public Relations in the Rutgers School of Communications and Information. Nailed it. Author of five different books and spent over 25 years at Taylor, the number one ranked public relations agency in sports. Mark, thanks for hanging out with me today. Michael, thank you very much. I was honored that you asked. The pleasure is all mine. I'm so excited. The, the reason I really love to do this show is because I get to ask people who, you know, maybe one day I'll be able to, to have one-tenth of the experience you do, considering all the things that you've done. But I get to ask you about your experiences, your stories, and hopefully we can impart some wisdom on others. So I'm very excited about that. But Mark, the first question I have for everybody on the For the Love of Sports podcast is, why do you love sports so much? Well, I love, I, I love that I've, I've listened to your podcast, so I was prepared for that first question. And I love the... I just love the storytelling that you and your guests go through because you really do get to understand the past and how it led to where someone is in their career now. So I'll, I'll, I'll try to make it brief. Um, I was born actually in the Bronx, New York. So by the time, I think it was probably for my fourth birthday. So in 19, would have been the summer of 1970, I went to my first ever Yankees game. I still remember like it was yesterday, you know, sitting in the bleachers uh, where a ticket might've been 25 cents or 50 cents. I can't recall. And just for the first time ever, getting out there and seeing this incredible green grass that you've never seen. Never, it was never that green, of course, in those days, probably because uh, television was either black and white or, or just didn't, it didn't show that green. But that first ever walking through and seeing that green grass was just amazing, amazing. Like I said, I can remember like it was yesterday. It was a hot late summer day, probably August. Um, and it was just an amazing experience. So my parents were always into sports, loved sports, followed sports. Uh, my dad, who um, eventually ended up where I grew up for most of my life at the West Point, the military academy, which I'll get into, he, uh, you know, he went to Fordham. He was a runner. He coached track and field at some high schools in New York. He led a couple of teams to Penn Relay championships. Um, and he always just had sports in his background. I, I remember in the 60s, he was a, uh, a Latin teacher. And somewhere between 61, 62, 63, he tutored Lou Alcindor, now Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, in Latin when he was in high school. Um, which is a little fun fact. Uh, and then my dad, uh, eventually in the, uh, probably started in the sixties, but as we got into the seventies, late seventies, he was a pretty big time college referee. He refed uh, all the great big East games, including the great coaches, the Luke Carsecas, you know, PJ Carlissimo's, um, you know, all those folks. Um, 
So I think that love of sports just came from, you know, family, from getting out and experiencing those events. Um, I mentioned that uh, in the 70s, my dad got the chance to go to West Point. He was a colonel in the Army, and he was the head of it, or one of the heads of admissions at the um, United States Military Academy at West Point. So starting at the age of four, I grew up at the military base at West Point, which if you've never been, it's amazing, it's incredible. But to grow up and live there, just a couple of quick stories. So I, why this ties in the sport. So I'm four going on five, it's uh, September, 1971. Every Saturday, I walked from my house, of course with my, my dad, to army football games on Saturday afternoons. I mean, you know, the, the legendary West Point football team. Now in the seventies, they were not very good. Um, but I got to see, you know, Nebraska, and they were probably as great as they ever were come in there and you know, beat Army, I think, 77 to nothing in the early 70s. I got to see Tony Dorsett when he was just a running back at Pittsburgh uh, come in there and run against Army. Um, and then around 1975, on the, on the basketball side of things, there was this coach who came in who no one could pronounce his last name, so they called him Coach K. And he, you know, that was his first full-time head coaching job and because my dad was a referee and because both my dad and my mom loved basketball, we went to every single Army basketball game at home, but we went to many of them on the road. I can think back, uh, must have been 76, 77, we took a trip up to University of Vermont to see Army play in a winter uh, tournament, a, a holiday tournament against teams like Florida State and Vermont. And again, that was when Coach K was there. So it was great to kind of be there and see that and, and experience all that. And um, so I think that's where just the love of sports came from, really from those early days, especially those days at West Point. That is incredible. So I'm a big Duke fan. I don't know if you knew that. So I really like that last story, <laughs> but that it, it's just so cool. Again, you know, just having those opportunities as, as a young kid and, you know, obviously living on the army base, living, living at West Point, like you're not too many people get to do that growing up. Right. So you had this incredible, incredible opportunity growing up to, go see the iconic army football games. And while they're not great, you know, especially at this time, I still watch the army Navy game every single year. I love it. It's one of my favorite games I watch. So it's just the opportunities and, and the pageantry that comes with it, but also the emotional connections and the emotional ties, obviously to our country, obviously to your parents and what you've done, you know, growing up and being able to kind of carry those throughout your life. I mean, it just sounds like, yeah, yeah, I don't was, believe in luck, but it sounds like you had a pretty darn good childhood. Yeah, it was it was great. I just two more two more little uh, memories. And from those here, let me just yeah. stop you there. Yes. Don't tell me all the stories you want. That's exactly <laughs> why I do this. So don't don't say little stories. Sure. Give me the longest ones you got, Mark. I'm all for it. <laughs> um, sometime in the mid '70s, uh, my dad was very involved with the cross country and track and field teams at West Point, and the head cross country coach had passed away suddenly, and they asked my dad to be the head coach at Army cross-country coach at Army. Um, and again, that was another sport that we used to go to every meet, every, every you know, home and away. Um, but it gave me the chance to go to, you know, NCAA track and field championships and um, events like that. And just to see, I remember, I remember being down in, uh, it was down in Franklin Field sometime in the mid to late 70s. I guess it was the late 70s. I remember, and I, I remember this well because it was NCAA championship. Dwight Stones, who's now a commentator, of course, for NBC track and field, but was a great high jumper. At that meet, and I remember vividly watching it, he jumped, I'm going to say, 7-8 or something. But it was on the cover of Sports Illustrated the following week. I mean, I don't know. It was probably maybe the one and only time a high jumper was on the, the cover of Sports Illustrated. But I remember being there and, and at that, you know, watching that and experiencing that. Um, and then while we were at West Point, Every summer, I'd go to Coach K's basketball camp. 
So 75, 76, 77, you know, before he left for Duke. But I, you know, he was close to my dad. My dad was close to him because, again, I think because my dad refereeing basketball and those things. But I just remember being in camp and in those days, you know, him, you know, stopping to say hello and check in on you. How's it going? All those things while you're camping, you are, you know, however old you are, nine, 10, 11 years old. But I just remember in those days before he became who he is today and how famous he is, just, um, again, just always there, willing to help. One, you know, what's in your mind? How are you doing? How's camp? Are you enjoying the experience? So, yeah, some really, really great experiences there as a, um, you know, during my 8, 9, 10, 11, 12-year-old time period. That is awesome. Yeah, not, not too many people get that. And it sounds like you're absolutely able to take advantage of it. And again, more Coach K stories, the happier I'll be during this conversation. I promise you that, Mark. Um, so, so with that, well, one thing I do want to point out, you, you brought up the pen relays. I don't know if you noticed what they did last week, which was really interesting. They actually had to do it all virtually, um, unfortunately, because of everything that's going on. So I don't, I'm, that's just kind of a little aside that I, I noticed was really, you know, people are having to take advantage or having to do things a little unorthodox, especially, you know, and you knowing track and field as well as you do. It is, yeah. uh, it's interesting how that had to happen. Yeah, it's funny. You say I was on a phone call yesterday talking about virtual, virtual sports. And to your point, I'm, I've been pretty fascinated with everything. I mean, we just had the NFL draft and, you know, highest ratings ever, or highest ratings, uh, at least in recent years. Um, I've really enjoyed what NASCAR is doing with their whole e-racing. Uh, I've watched now at least three of those races, and it looks so lifelike. Um, so I do like how sports are, you know, innovating during this time when we can't physically get together. And I also like what, uh, you know, not just the leagues are doing, but also um, individuals. And that goes all, even to the entertainment side, where we're seeing you know, musicians and singers performing from their homes. Again, I like the way people are innovating, delivering content, delivering entertainment, delivering sports in non-traditional ways. But the one thing I'll say is I think even when we get back to physically going to an arena, to a stadium, I think we're learning a lot of things now that will be applied down the road. So I think we'll see more of this virtual events, virtual entertainment, uh, virtual interaction, because um, it works, people are engaged. And it brings sports outside of just the arena where it's being played and it extends it to a much larger audience. I think, again, and I, I do want to get to you, but you bring up a great point, especially with the draft. A lot of people, uh, at least on the Internet and, and those close to the situation, said that they – and I kind of liked it too, the kind of like the, the homey feel, like getting to actually go into these coaches and their GMs and their houses. Obviously, the Cliff Kingsbury picture where he's sitting on this couch with his fireplace, you know, 100 yards away for whatever reason lit in the middle of the day. I think that was a little bit of a showboat move, but, you know, you got to flaunt it. But it's kind of cool to see, you know, a little bit more behind the scenes on how these guys and girls live and what they do. And I think it's it, – it, again, it, it, the emotional connection, which is something that I'm always very, you know, in, in tune with in sports it's it makes it tighter it makes it deeper and you you now you know feel like you know these guys just a little bit more whether you actually do or you don't I completely agree with you and i know later we'll chat about some of my books but you know one of my favorite topics is generation z which again is is anyone who was born starting around uh, 1997 and one thing i always talk about as a marketer generation z wants access give them something they can't normally get and i agree with you exactly the draft gave us access into Bill Belichick's home, right? When have we ever been in his home? Never. Um, it gave us access to greater storytelling. It gave us access to families, right? Because typically those athletes, those football players would have been in a waiting room in, well, wherever it was, Philadelphia, Chicago, Dallas, New York. Now some, we're in their homes with them. We're sitting there with their mother, their father, their brother, their sister, and 
we're hearing about those individuals. So I agree with you. It all goes back to what, you know, access and, and storytelling. Now you feel like you know those athletes more or those teams more or that league better, which means you're probably going to watch it more or at least um, engage with it more on social media. So I think that's the key moving forward in sports and entertainment, but sports, we need to give fans, all fans, not just Gen Z, more access, more experiences, more things that typically you don't get when you buy a ticket, walk into a stadium, watch a game and leave, or when you watch a game on TV. I completely agree. And I think that'll be something interesting that maybe you can even teach in one of your classes um, next semester when everything comes <laughs> yes, back to normal yes. a little bit. Um, so going back to your story now, and again, I appreciate the, uh, the, the little tangent we went on there, and I'm sure, sure there'll be a couple more during this conversation. But with, you know, with growing up in sports, with growing up with your father being coaches and you know, knowing, you know, now knowing what Coach K has become and who he's become, I mean, back then he was just a really nice guy that coached sure. Army, right? Yeah. Was working in sports, especially from a very young age, always the goal for you? Yeah, it was. I just loved sports so much. And I really loved, and it even goes back to those days at West Point, I even loved, um, you know, the folks who are on the sports information side of things. So when I go to a West Point game, for whatever reason, I was fascinated by uh, the folks who were working with the media, who were handing out the stats, who were, uh, you know, helping the coaches conduct media interviews before or after the game. Something about that just caught my attention. Um, I just, when I'd go to a game, of course, I watched the game. I love the game, but I always, I would watch kind of what they did as well. And I'd watch how the media and sports information or sports media folks interacted. Um, so I kind of looked at that and said, well, there's something here. You can actually have a career in sports, even if you're not an athlete or a coach, but there's something around sports. And then as I grew up, it just became, you know, went from that to the marketing, the promotions around sports. Um, so even when I go to an event, um, maybe I'm a little bit different, but, you know, I'm looking not just what's on the field, but I'm also looking at how brands interacting with the, the fans during the game, what's going on on the scoreboard, what's going on on the, the dasher boards or the sideboards, um, what's happening during uh, between periods or, or innings or timeouts on the field from a promotion standpoint. Um, it's one of the reasons I still love going to, you know, minor league baseball games. I've got a, I've got a team maybe five miles from my house here in the Jersey shore called the Lakewood blue claws of Philadelphia, Philly, single A affiliate. And I, um, I've had the president of the team in my classroom a few times at Rutgers. And I, I'm just fascinated because when I go there, I don't care who wins or loses. I actually am focused solely on the engagement from the moment you walk up and hand your ticket to everything in between the innings, to the promotions. And so I just really take all that in. And, and whenever I get the chance to have the president of the, the team come to my class, um, I, I always, you know, what's working? What's, and he says after every game, they – they do a quick debrief. What worked well tonight? What didn't work well tonight? What do we have to tweak the next time? Because at the end of the day, it's all about the fan experience. And if they have a great experience, they will come back and maybe they'll bring their friends and neighbors. If they didn't have a great experience, they probably won't come back. Exactly. And that's the thing about minor league baseball. You know, there is a team here. I'm close to New Brunswick, so I'm sure you sure. know the area. The Somerset Patriots is, a, no joke, probably like a four-minute drive from where I live, which is great. So in the summer, it's like a $15 ticket with the two of the two of us can go my fiance and I grab a couple beers, some hot dogs. You're at a baseball game. I don't have to drive to city field. I don't have to drive down to Philadelphia with all that time, spend all the time in traffic, spend all the money on a ticket. It's baseball is the best sport in the world. Cause you can just sit there and relax and do whatever you want and watch a game. And, and it's really interesting. You bring that up again, because there's um a book. I'm sure you've read it. Uh, 
the yellow tux gentleman who owns the Savannah Bananas. I think his name is Jesse Cole. Can't remember the name of the book, but if you haven't read it, anyone out there, it's incredible because he just talks about how they were able to, you know, again, it's, it's entertainment, especially when it's minor league baseball, it's less sport, it's more entertainment. And you you bring up a really good point in learning those aspects and what you can do and how you can do it. It's, it's really cool because yeah, let's be very honest. It's minor league baseball. Unless you have some of the top prospects in the game, people are not coming to really, really like sit down and, and vehemently watch a baseball game. They're coming to hang out and enjoy themselves on a nice summer night, hopefully. So I, I love that you bring that fact up. And what's interesting about that to your point is major leagues, and I don't just mean major league baseball can learn from minor leagues because to your point, you're not going to a minor league game because of a player on the team or the manager of the team, or it's really about the experience. And so what is it about that experience, even though it's at a local level that perhaps can translate to the professionals. And I'm sure there's, I'm sure back and forth, there's a lot of conversations like that, but I do agree. There's, there's, there's things that can be learned from, again, from a sports marketing standpoint. And hopefully they take advantage of that because it's difficult to get me to go to a Mets game anymore. I mean, City Field's so far, man. It's like two trains, a bus, a subway. It's, it's ridiculous. It's not that much, but it is ridiculous. So again, back to you. I'm sorry. There's like our third oh, tangent of the day. We're only like 15 minutes into this thing. Um, so your sophomore year of high school, I love that you gave me this information. You were a sports writer. And same thing your senior year of high school. You became a sports writer at a local newspaper. What is, what is a 15-year-old doing going to a sports – getting like, hey, yeah, I'd like to write about sports. You guys have anything for me? How's that work? Well, I, I think I uh, – for that one, I'm going to credit my mom. My mom was the one who always pushed me, pushed me. She had a young – when I was a young age, she knew I was going to get into something in communication. She always said public relations. Um, but I think it started with content. And, again, I loved sports. Um, and she saw an ad in this local paper in small town in Belmar, New Jersey, which is at the shore – and I'm trying to think of the name of the paper. I think it was, uh, I can't remember the name. Um, but she saw an ad, she goes, oh, they're looking for a sports editor. You go there. Like, basically told me to go there. And I was probably the only person that responded to this ad. I was probably the only person, she was probably the only person that read the newspaper because it was a free, you know, kind of shopper newspaper. Mm-hmm. And I walked in and I said, you know, I'm a high school student, but I love sports. I love writing. That was the other thing too. I love writing. I love storytelling. And a um, fellow who just nice enough, you know, he, his main business was a print shop. The newspaper was just kind of an offshoot of the print shop. In fact, I think the newspaper was probably a marketing vehicle for the print shop, which at the time I wasn't that savvy, so I didn't know that. Um, so he said, sure, you're the sports editor, start. So that's where I really started as a sophomore in high school, just uncovering stories around the Jersey Shore that were just sports stories, whether it was about a uh, grammar school basketball team that won the state championships or someone who won the local five-mile run. Um, I would just go out there, and usually with one of my parents, usually not by myself, um, and I'd like, hey, there's an event. Let's, let's go. I've got I've to find whoever you know, wins this race and go interview them. And of course, uh, as a sophomore, it's, even though I had the idea of doing that, it wasn't like I was, you know, out there running around. My parents were probably pushing me saying, okay, there he is. Go, go get that guy or go speak to that person. Uh, I even remember going back to um, that time, there was a legendary summer basketball league at the Jersey called, called Jersey Shore Summer League. And it was played the headliner in Neptune, New Jersey. Now the headliner was this nightclub, but outside the nightclub was an outdoor basketball court. And back then, so you're talking, this would have been 81, 82, 83. It was a combination of some of the best NBA players and uh, trying to think of college, maybe not college at the time, maybe college graduates. And we used to go all the time and it would be a summer night at the shore. 
um, over there in Neptune. And, you know, I don't know, there might have been 150 people in the audience, 200 people. But it was a lot of players who had played for the Knicks or the Nets and maybe some other teams. And so I used to go over there. And again, my dad probably had to push me a little bit. And I thought, okay, we got to, I want to interview this player. He said, no problem. Let's, let's go do it. And so after the game, I would just walk up to this, you know, NBA player and, and start interviewing him. The next thing you know, I'd be in the newspaper a week later. So it That's was, awesome. uh, it was a great experience. I'm glad my parents pushed me to do that. Cause I don't think I would have seen an ad and walked into some newspaper, but they told me to, and I, they didn't walk me in there. I walked in on my own and did it. Um, but about two years later as a senior, the main daily newspaper in the area at the shores, the Asbury Park Press, which again been around for a long time. And uh, there was one writer, legendary writer, who was actually a U.S. Olympian in race walking by the name of Elliot Denman, who, legendary writer, covered Olympics for years, covered all different types of sports. And um, thanks to, again, a connection through my dad and, and knowing Elliot a little bit, he said, yeah, sure, you want a chance? We'll, I'll get, we'll send you out for some things, you know, go cover this, go cover that. So, Again, you know, senior in high school, I'm still pretty young. And, you know, it's whatever, summertime. It's like, okay, there's this, uh, again, there's, you know, a 5K race or something. Go cover it and then come back and file your story. Well, first, I didn't even know what file your story meant. Two, I didn't even know the technology. So when I got back to the office at the Arisbury Park Press, you've got all these, you know, 40, 50, 60-year-old. And who's this 17-year-old kid that probably looks like he's 12 years old walking in trying to type a story, which, you know, probably took me hours just to type a story because I didn't even understand the technology at the time. But then the, the incredible feeling to wake up the next day and in the paper, there's a story that you wrote. Um, it's pretty cool. It was pretty cool. So, yeah, that was, I guess, the start of really sports, media, and the idea of, I think, content, right? Storytelling, which is kind of the common thread throughout my career is the idea of identifying stories and telling those stories. And I think that's, that's what's going to get everybody, storytelling. We all grow up. You know, that's, that's one thing about just humans. We learn through stories. Uh, you know, I have an Italian grandfather. So what do I do on Sundays when the world's normal? I go over there and, you know, he tells me the same story for the 14th time with some new details and a little bit of different <laughs> stuff here and there. And I listen and I learn from it, what he did. And, and that's why, again, that's why I love doing this show because I get to talk to people like you who – you love storytelling and hopefully we can then learn through your story. And I think that's very important. But the fact that at 15 years old, you're already a sports reporter, you know, I can <laughs> see, I can see it now. Little Mark just running around with his <laughs> pad and his pen and yeah. just trying to get all the notes down and everything. And, you know, your parents probably just thinking that it was funny, but you know, you're having a good time. And I, again, you know, being able to, and especially at a younger age, get that validation of seeing your name in a newspaper yeah. Yeah. That had to have been so cool. And like seeing like, okay, I wrote those words. I did this. This was my work. I could see how that really catapults you into an industry that especially, again, you grew up loving since a very young age. Yeah. I remember I said, I don't remember the name of the newspaper exactly, but I remember my section because they called it the Shore Sports Report. Pretty sure that was my name, the section. But mm -hmm. I just remember because as you said, my name was probably bigger than the stories. And that wasn't my doing. This was the, the printer. He wanted to make my name. Um, but the second part of that, which I love too, and it goes into this idea of kind of marketing is it was a free newspaper. So the day it would come out, whenever it come out, and I knew exactly when Friday at say 12 noon, I would, um, I would make sure I was there at the print shop. I've still visual. I can still remember where that print shop was. I can go back there today if I wanted to grab hundreds of copies of this thing, which no, again, probably no one else yep. in the, in the read. And I would go to, if there was a big event that night or, and I would just literally go car to car, just put on their windshield. 
I would just put this thing out there for anyone to see. Um, I still, I remember that very, very well. I remember doing all that. And again, just cause it was, uh, you know, it was fun. It was content. It had my name on it. And then I wanted to promote it as well. So I would, uh, I would just hand this paper out to anyone. I'm sure many people probably threw it out, but uh, I was, I was, I was even marketing it, you know, at that age. I was going to say, even at that age, little did you know you were doing your job for the rest of your life, uh, just in a little fashion. And I like how you keep saying content. Was it even called content back then? No. I was going to say, it was was just like an article, right? Yeah, it was just an article. But uh, now that we look back and I think back, you know, even storytelling, I feel like is a term that we use a lot now that I don't think we were using then. But the heart of it, it was, you know, storytelling and it was content that was being delivered kind of in an old fashioned way through a a print newspaper because there was no internet at the time. But you did it, and that's all that matters. And so after a couple years of doing that within high school, sophomore, and senior year, you go to Rutgers, uh, major in journalism. You were also a part of the radio program there. So it seems like you're really going down this journalism route still at this point in time. I mean, you call the women's basketball games. You call especially, you know, the men's basketball Mm -hmm. games. I mean, what? How? it seems like you pretty much just completely threw yourself into sports journalism by this point in time. I, um, I guess fortunate for me, when I got to college, I knew what I loved. I loved journalism and I loved sports. So I wanted to combine those two things. The journalism program at Rutgers was a great, great program uh, from the sports writing to uh, broadcasting, producing, even had a few public relations courses at the time, even though it was the journalism side of the, the School of Communication and Information. Um, but I did love media content, even though we didn't use that word, whether in the written word, broadcasting. So yeah, I... Um, Still kicked myself a little bit. I don't know why I waited till first week of sophomore year, but first week of sophomore year, there was a, a posting that I saw for WRSU Radio, which is one of the legendary college radio stations in this country. Um, and I said, I'm going to that meeting. You know, and specifically, it was a sports meeting. Well, I get to that meeting, and boy, there might have been 20, 25, 30, many more people than I ever imagined. And I learned on that meeting, you know, you had to try out. They didn't just let you go call the games. You had to go try out and try out again and try out again until they thought you were good enough. Um, but it was the probably the best thing I did early in my college career because now all of a sudden I was part of this station. I was uh, now partnering and collaborating with other uh, folks who had the same passion for broadcasting. And then ultimately was traveling with the football team, the basketball team, the women's basketball team, which uh, is very good now, was very, very good then. Um, Doing everything from play-by-play to um, coming in the studio and doing sports reports. I remember, boys, for some reason, every Thursday morning I had like the 7 a.m. report um, to doing um, one- and two-hour shows, you know, sports call-in shows after after Saturday football games. Um, Loved all that. It was just great. And I think now some of the, the men and women who were in the room at the time, and I'll just, I'll just rattle off a couple, but, you know, that exact same first meeting sophomore year I met uh, and, and ended up calling games with these folks. But you know, Mike Emanuel, who's now a face of Fox News, who reports from the Capitol every day on Fox News, um, he was a broadcast partner of mine. Uh, Gordon Deal, who is on 300 radio stations every single morning with one of the largest syndicated radio shows um, you know, he was on, he was in there too. So, but we were all, you know, 1920 at the time, uh, but we had a blast. We loved it. It was fun. And um, again, it was going back to, you know, great content, um, storytelling, and uh, a tremendous experience when you're only 1920, 21, um, and trying to figure out what are you going to do for a career once you graduate from school. 
and, and very few people get that opportunity. I mean, not, not everybody gets to go to a major program like Rutgers that has major college sports where you then are able to go and, you know, obviously I'm assuming, I don't know how many schools have some sort of radio program, sure. but very few, or at least that, that, that percentage comes way down when we talk about major college sports programs, especially like Rutgers, especially, you know, Big Ten in general. Now we're in the Big Ten, used to be in the Big East. We don't need to go through that conversation sure. again, but it's just getting that opportunity, as you said, at 19 years old, it's almost, you're so naive. You don't really know what's going on. But in reality, you're, you're able to look back now and be like, I, that's, no one gets that type of opportunity, right? And now that's something you can put on your resume. And that's, you know, we'll get to the, the next point. But I mean, like, what did you, did you know what was going on in the moment? Or was it, as you were just saying, like, oh, we're just having fun. We're just on the radio, you know? Just yeah, I, it's funny you say that. Because when I leave campus, um, let's say I teach a, an evening course and there's a basketball game. I put on WRSU and I listen to the game as I'm leaving campus and driving home. I did that a lot this year because the team, the men's basketball team was, yeah. was oh. tremendous, um, tremendous team. And I listen and I'm like, well, I know we were never as good as these students. <laughs> you know, cause I'm listening to them call the play by play now. And I'm like, there's no way these, 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 these students, they sound like professionals. I felt like we didn't even know what we were doing. Um, so it's, it's interesting you say that, who knows, maybe we were half decent, but um, when I listen to the students now calling games, I'm like, I don't think we were, we, I think we were just happy to be there. We we're happy that we were able to pronounce the names correctly um, and all those kinds of things. But to your point, it was just, just a great experience. The experience one, you're right, to be on a radio station, to call games, to um, travel with the teams to various cities, you know, where again, you, it felt kind of, you know, almost like the big time. I mean, here you are getting to another university and, you know, they're treating you, you know, you're the, you're the broadcast partner, you know, or at least the college radio station for this team. And, you know, they're, they're treating you well, treating you with respect and giving you all the information you need. So it was, uh, it was, yeah, it was a great time. It was, uh, I think it, it was a major kind of chapter in helping me as I prepared for my career. Yeah, I just think it's so cool that you get this opportunity. You earn the opportunity, obviously. You put in the work since you were 15 years old. So it was very well-deserved <laughs> on your part. And while at Rutgers, you also had a sports public, relationship, uh, sports public relations agency job in New York City by day, working marketing and promotions. And then you were also on the radio by night. And I looked at the schedule, and I'm pretty sure it was like, nine yeah. to five thirty, yeah. and then six to 12. How many days a week did you do something like that? I, uh, that was four days a week. So I tell that story every time um, I start a new semester and start my courses and we do introductions on the first day. I always weave that story and not because I'm bragging about myself. I'm just trying to inspire the students that you, you, can, you can do things you, you never thought possible, right? You can push yourself beyond your limits. So um, yeah, quick story on that. You know, maybe it was just that sophomore year. Something must have happened to me sophomore year. So sophomore year, not only did I go to that radio station meeting and, and join the WRSU sports team, um, but I also walked over to the athletic department over at the rack, at least at the time they were housed at the rack where the men's basketball team plays and the women's basketball team plays. And I knocked on the door and just said, uh, I'm a sophomore journalism major, um, but I want to understand uh, sports communication, sports public relations. Can I do anything here? And at the time, the person who led that department was Kevin McConnell, who um, is now back at Rutgers, actually. Um, and he uh, gave me an opportunity just to come in a few days a week and do anything. You know, initially, it was just uh, read through newspapers and cut out the clippings of the, any, any story about a Rutgers athletic team or athlete or coach. Just cut out the clippings and uh, take them on a piece of paper and create kind of a, 
uh, a report. And of course, well, that sounds boring. <laughs> uh, when you're getting started, you do anything. And uh, you used to do that, and then you go to a copy machine and just make copies of that. And then those copies, I guess, would go to people in the athletic department. But eventually, sophomore, junior, senior year, they gave me more responsibilities to the point where I served as kind of the, the, the sports media relations uh, contact for the men's lacrosse team. And Rutgers had a really great men's lacrosse team. So I would do everything from um, produce the entire media guide for the team, which meant a lot of writing, a lot of research, a lot of putting together um, this, this media guide and things like that. Um, so it was at that time where I'm kind of now straddling sports media, sports broadcasting, sports content and you know communication public relations so the summer of uh, 1988 um, between my junior and senior year of college definitely from a career standpoint was a pivotal summer for me and that's why again i always talk to my students and kind of share the story and so originally uh, and again give credit to my parents because they were the ones that uh, helped me get this really my dad um originally i had secured a internship with WNBC. Um, in fact, I think Howard Stern was there in the morning in the studio and we were there at night. And it was one of the first major, not the first, but one of the first major sports radio shows. And it was on every night from seven to midnight. And Dave Sims was the host. Uh, Dave, I think is out in Seattle now, but he actually hosts Coach K show on Sirius or, or partners with Coach K show on Sirius that I listen to every week. Um, and then Mike Breen was actually the producer slash um, update guy. And, uh, you know, at the bottom of the hour, top of the hour, he'd do the updates. Basically I went to a, a ticker rip, ripped off the latest scores. And within you know, a minute or two before say seven 30, I'd go and organize it, pull it together, hand it to him. And he would, you know, read the report. So, um, I felt some pressure on me, one to deliver it on time, but also deliver the accurate information. And of course now Mike is, you know, the lead MBA yes. you know, man for ABC and ESPN. But at the time, the three of us or four, you know, maybe there was probably another producer or two, but we were there every night from seven to midnight and uh, hosting this or putting on this sports radio show on WNBC. But so I was satisfied with that. And then somewhere again through my dad, he said, uh, well, there's this sports public relations, sports marketing agency, Mike Cohen communications. And um, either, you know, he had a connection there or knew Mike and he said, you know, they may need some interns. And I, of course, my response being a college student was, oh, I already have an internship. Why, why would I want to go into New York in the morning, be there all night? And, you know, and of course, he, he, he was wiser than I was. And he mm -hmm. said, no, 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 you're missing the point. This is experience. This is networking. This is contacts. And so that summer of my junior year, summer between junior and senior year, I hopped on a train from New Brunswick every morning, probably about 7.30 or so got into the city maybe about 8.30, made my way up to the uh, 50s to this uh, Mike Cohen Communications, which was again a kind of a small um, sports, public relations sports marketing agency with four or five employees. Um, and I made it, when I got there after day one, I left and I said, this is what I actually want to do when I graduate. I knew the day I left there, the first day, um, and our client, I still remember, my, I say my first client, it wasn't, you know, it was the agency's client, but the first thing they had me work on, so summer of 88 was the Arena Football League. I think it had just started that year, the year before. And they said, hey, you know, we have to promote this league, we have to uncover stories, all those kinds of things. And I still remember, first story I pitched to media, and the first story I ever got media to write about, there was a team in the, um, 
league that played in Madison Square Garden, New York Knights. I'm pretty sure it was the New York Knights. And the quarterback on the team was a Wall Street broker trader during the day and the quarterback of the team at night. And I'm sure someone told me that. I, I don't think I uncovered that on my own. And luckily, though, I, that is a story. That's a great story. And so I was pitching that story and getting media to write about this Wall Street trader by day, quarterback by night. And again, I just was like, this is what I want to do. And it, it's interesting. If I, you know, taken the, the route I was going to take, which is, why do I need two internships? I'm a college kid. I want to enjoy myself. I want to enjoy my summer. Um, that wouldn't have happened. And if that didn't happen, um, one, I wouldn't have understood this world of kind of marketing, public relations. And there were two guys there at the time, Tony Signori and Brian Harris, who I met, uh, who I worked under. Um, in small world, you know, 25 plus years later, I went on to work with them and partner with them at Taylor and have worked together for years and years. But if it wasn't for, you know, one, getting the opportunity intern there and listening to my parents and not saying, I don't need an internship, um, and still listening to them and taking the internship, you know, that changed kind of changed my whole life, changed my whole career. So yeah, the schedule was interesting. Leave New Brunswick in the morning, 7.30ish, get to New York. By nine something, you're in the office. Work till about 5.30 or so. Literally run from, I think the office was in 53rd, I think. 53rd down to 30 Rock. So now you're running down to 40 something. Running to 30 Rock, have a you know, full NBC badge, ID, whatever you want to call it. Up 30 Rock to WNBC Radio. Get there by six, no later than six every night, probably about 5.45, and start just pulling together again, scores, who's playing tonight, kind of getting everything organized. And then staying there until 12 o'clock, show ended at 11.59, racing out of there at 12.01, because there was no work to do after the show, getting to Penn Station, getting on like a 12.30, 12.35 train, getting back to New Brunswick 1.15 in the morning, taking a nap, doing it all over again, four days a week, only four days a week. Um, because on Fridays, you had to go to Rutgers, which was great. I still remember Roger Cohen, who was a legendary professor, and I think he even was the dean at one point while I was, uh, after I graduated. And he, um, he kind of hosted a Friday internship um, session where all, all of us as interns would come in. We just share our experiences at our internship. And we do that on Friday morning at like 9 o'clock to about 10.30. And then uh, as a college student, like, okay, I got to get to the shore now because it's, you know, it is summertime. I want to enjoy myself a little bit. Um, but it, but it was, uh, yeah, that summer really for me was the pivotal summer. And so when I speak to my students today, whether they want to get in sports or music or fashion or anything, you know, anything is possible. I tell them that anything is possible. Pursue your passion, whatever your passion is, and just go after those opportunities because you never know what will result from a simple, you know, internship, meeting someone, informational interview, um, expanding your network. You just never know where it may lead. You really don't. And I think that that's the most important part, especially at a young age. Um, I only had a couple internships and I quickly found out I didn't want to work in like a cubicle office. And that was pretty much what I got from it. Unfortunately, didn't have any of the other experiences that you were able to have. Um, I guess I didn't pursue them nearly as hard either. So it's <laughs> probably on me. And maybe that would have set me down another path, but I'm here now. And I think that's the most important part. And, you know, I think with with, you know, first, I like that you said you took a nap because I was going to say you get home at one fifteen. I mean, you're really not falling asleep to at least one thirty, one forty-five. Yeah. I don't know. I can't just walk sure. into bed and go to sleep. So I'm sure it took you a little while. You wake up, you do it again. But you, you said the first day that you were there, 
you've figured out that's what you wanted to do. Now, thankfully, I guess PR and marketing, PR and marketing, they're kind of like cousins and PR and and the media are in this weird relationship, I guess we'll call it. Yeah. What is it like coming from the media world? Now, obviously knowing you didn't, you know, have a full-time, like a giant full-time gig. Like what what were you able to take from your, the media side to pull to the PR side that made you say, wow, this is, this is what, and this is why I want to do it for the rest of my life. Yeah, it was, it was, goes back to what you said earlier, storytelling. On the media side, I was kind of reporting stories, covering stories, um, which was fine. On the public relations marketing side, I was uncovering, identifying stories. And then the fun challenge was trying to convince media to cover this. We, you know, I, this is an interesting story. Again, whether it was the quarterback who was a Wall Street broker by day, quarterback by night, there was interest in that. So all of a sudden, there was more, um, I don't call it reward, but to identify the story, kind of package the story, pitch the story, and then get, whether it's the New York Times, USA Today, Sports Illustrated, the Sporting News, or any other outlet today, the many other outlets say, to then say, yeah, that is interesting. We want to do it. We want to write a story. We want to cover this. We want to make this a feature. We want to make it the cover of, you know, the Wall Street Journal, which I'll come back to a little bit later. Um, there was just something about that that was even more exciting than just covering a story and seeing your byline. It was like, you know, this story wouldn't be in Sports Illustrated if I didn't identify it, package it in the right way pitch it to the right editor or at least get it to somebody. Um, so it, it was really about that. But this, the commonality was storytelling, content. Uh, and in this case, it was still around sports. Um, but instead of just reporting now, I was, for lack of a better word, you know, pitching and trying to mm-hmm. convince media to cover these stories. That's really interesting. And again, it's all in the same space. And I think that yes. that's really important. So thankfully, you know, you had that media experience, which led you to the public relations side, which again, you know, than you did for 20 some odd years, if not a little bit longer, which I think is really interesting. So after, after those crazy, crazy days in college, uh, your first full-time job, which you had for a little while, you were the assistant sports media relations director at Fordham University. If I'm not mistaken, and I picked up earlier, your father went to Fordham, correct? Yeah. And uh, so there's a, there's my father, my grandfather both went to Fordham. So there is a Fordham connection, but Yeah, there was an opportunity open there. It was um, similar to the work I'd been doing in the Rutgers, um, I think they call it the Sports Media Relations Department at the time. Similar work, you know, where you're helping promote the, the teams and the athletes there at Fordham University. Um, fortunately, I, uh, you know, got by the name of Joe Favorito, who was there then and who I still uh, uh, talk to on a regular basis now, uh, who's been in uh, sports marketing, sports public relations for years. Um, took a chance and hired me. Um, and it was tremendous because again, it was about, okay, well, what are the stories that are here? You know, you're in a market like New York. So you're competing against every professional sports team in New York for, again, this is pre-internet. So you're talking about, again, trying to get into the New York times, the daily news, the post on TV. And so it was, uh, the same formula, the same ingredients. I can think back now. Um, I think one of the, the, the stories, you know, we had a, we had a blind cross country runner, um, which you think of that line that does, how can, how can he run five miles on a course in Van Cortland park? And, and if he's blind, so that was a story that I think the coach brought to us, but then you interview the athlete, you find out more about it. 
Um, and I remember that was a pretty big story that we got a lot of people to cover. Um, and so there were stories like that. So there was, again, it felt like a little bit of a David versus Goliath because, again, we weren't the Yankees, the Giants, the Jets, the Knicks. We were Fordham University, legendary university, but still competing against the big guys, the pro teams for space in the media. Um, but there was, even in that one year I was there, there was just a lot of great stories. Um, in fact, the year I was there, they went from, I believe, Division Three to Division One AA. Um, so that was a major story. That was a great angle, kind of the return of Fordham to Division One, uh, one AA, uh, excuse me, Division One football. Um, so there were a lot of stories like that, even in just that short time that I was there that, uh, uh, again, continued the passion for storytelling. And I'm sure during that time too, you know, as you were networking, as you were making connections at your previous stops, I'm sure this was a great place to make connections with all these places. As you said, this was pre-internet. So it's not like any idiot can just start a podcast and invite you on it at 12 o'clock on a Monday or a Tuesday, right? Sure. You know, it's not that easy. Um, thankfully it is now. And that's why I'm sitting in this seat. But back then you really had to go develop those relationships and create those relationships with the media members, pitch them stories that they actually wanted to hear and that's how you're going to continue to get them and get in their ear, I'm assuming. So what was it then like going from Fordham now going to Taylor? Uh, or it wasn't quite Taylor at the time, if I'm not mistaken. I didn't write down the full no, name. No, no, but yeah, um, you're absolutely right. So it went from Fordham in, in March of 1990 to what was called Allen Taylor Communication. So yeah, a little bit different. I mean, at least, you know, when you're at a university, uh, for lack of a better word, maybe it, it seems less commercial when you're pitching a story, mm-hmm. right, about an athlete. Because, you know, it's, it's Fordham University. It's Rutgers yeah. University. Um, now all of a sudden, um, you're pitching stories. They might still be sports related, but they're on behalf of sponsors. And I can remember, you know, my first major, major, major opportunity was in 91 going into 92, where I got the chance to, um, handle public relations for Bristol Myers, a sponsor of the U S Olympic team around the Albertville games, uh, the winter games in early 92 and the Barcelona games in the summer of 92. Wow. Amazing. I mean, I'm only out of school less than three years, and here I am working with a major company, major brand on a platform like the Olympic Games and deeply involved in the preparation, the planning, going on site both Alberville and Barcelona for, for several weeks, uh, working with uh, legendary Olympic athletes, current Olympians. And again, but the challenge, as you said, was Yes, we were getting, using those athletes, working with those athletes to, to generate stories and content and media, but the, the goal was to get media for this sponsor, for this corporate entity. And that's where, to your point, it's a little bit different because it's not just the human interest story, it's, it's how do you tie that human interest story into, in this case, it was Clarol. Um, and that's a more of a challenge. And it's still a challenge today because, again, it's got that commercial element to it as opposed to just a good old-fashioned human interest story in sports. And, and we all love human interest stories, right? That's what really drives, especially when it comes to the Olympics. Um, as we said, we watched the draft. A lot of the draft was, um, it was heavy on, you know, the tragedies in life, unfortunately. And that's kind of what they leaned into. And it got people paying attention and understanding what these, what these young kids go through in their lives. And it's coming from different places all over the world, some all over the country. Um, you know, it's, it's very, it's very, it's something. Um, and now to your point, now you have to tie a brand. You have to tie a sponsor into that human interest story. And sometimes it, if it seems forced, it's definitely forced and it's not a good look. So what was like, how did you develop the skill of being able to, again, you have the skill of storytelling, sure. but now how do you develop that skill, the extra nuance that comes into it to understand like, 
all right, like there's the human interest, there's the sponsor. We really need to blend this in a way that it doesn't, it has to look authentic. It has to be genuine. We can't just kind of mash some stuff together and say, all right, here you go. Enjoy it. Run with this. Like, yeah. how'd you do that? How yeah, you it's interesting. It's, uh, it's, it's, uh, <laughs> it's your point. You can't just smash it together and then go out and pitch it. Um, not as high profile as the Olympics, but one of the first major campaigns I was on for probably almost a decade from 91 to almost 2000. Again, not as high profile as the Olympics or the Super Bowl or anything else. But one of the first assignments I was given was a, a Canadian whiskey by the name of Yukon Jack, which is probably still out on the market. But, and I was on the very front end of using the sport of professional arm wrestling to promote this product. I didn't know what I got into in 1991. They said, hey, by the way, you're going to be working on this Yukon Jack arm wrestling. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. And I remember my first ever event was in Chicago in, in um, a champion sports bar and, and you know, experiencing this and seeing this. Little did I know I was going to then kind of take this over for the next eight, nine, ten years and go from a small two or three city event to a 25 city event that eventually was televised by ESPN um, as we grew it and evolved it. But to your point, my first mission was, okay, who are all the great stories here? Um, who are the stories that can elevate this niche sport to mainstream media? And I'm not going to go into all of them, of course, but just a, a couple that led to major things. So first story I uncovered, or whether someone told me or, what, or not, but the first story I really focused on was a mother and son out of Winchester, Virginia, I believe, um, Sue and Dave Patton. She was a probably a 70-something, looked like your grandmother. And I think we called her the first lady of arm wrestling. And she had sons who were arm wrestlers. Well, her one son, Dave, was a champion arm wrestler, one of the, the best of the best of the best of the best, probably only weighed about 140, 150 pounds and competed in kind of lightweight division. But his training regimen and what he did and the fact that she kind of served as his coach slash agent <laughs> um, became kind of our first major story. And I, I still to this day, I don't have it with me, but I still remember somehow getting Sports Illustrated to write a 10-page feature story on it turned out to be on the entire series, our Yukon Jack series, but they were the hook that got Sports Illustrated really, really, really mm -hmm. interested. And when I saw that, I said, wow, this is big time. Because that was when Sports Illustrated was Sports Illustrated. Yeah. And they had that, that last story was always the feature story. And I'm talking about, I, I actually have a photocopy of my files, but 10 pages on Yukon Jack arm wrestling. Um, the other one real quickly was um, probably a year or two later, uh, we had a men's and women's division. And um, as we were going through 91, 92, 93, you know, uh, I kept hearing this name of this woman that had never come to one of our events, but she was the greatest, you know, this woman, Dot Jones, never forget it. And they said, wait till she comes out, wait till this thing becomes bigger. And she comes out and she lived out near Venice beach, California. And she was a, you know, a six foot one, uh, amazingly strong woman. And eventually I, Doc Jones did come out and eventually Doc Jones, I think won every single year. Um, but more importantly, she was like a former top ranked, I think shot putter or discus thrower in college, might've even been good enough, probably qualified for the NCAAs. Um, but since she was in LA, she was always going to acting gigs and trying to get jobs and roles in acting. And uh, once I kind of understood that and started traveling the country with her, because again, I would travel with all these arm wrestlers. Um, I said, this, this story might even be better than the mom and the son. 
And I remember being in San Francisco sometime in the 96, 97, somewhere in there. And I convinced the Wall Street Journal, you've, you know, there's this woman who's not only the greatest woman arm wrestler of all time, she's an actress on the side. She's a former, you know, all-American shot putter. And while we're in San Francisco for what we then called our world championships, I wake up the morning of our event and I knew a story was coming out, but I, I go to the newsstand and there on the cover of the Wall Street Journal is just the entire story. Um, and it was some, the headline was something like a champion who carries a purse or something like that. Uh Um, but it was like, so again, not as so profile, high profiles, you know, I worked on the Super Bowl halftime show when Paul McCartney was the, uh, was the performer, um, and have done a number of things like that. But, uh, at the end of the day, it was just incredible stories that had to be told or that I wanted to tell. And in telling them, as you said, if you tell them authentically, the brand who is supporting, in this case, this brand was not just running events. They're really supporting the sport that these people mm-hmm. love, prize money. Um, so the brand was authentically tied into this tough man, tough woman sport because it was, again, it was a Canadian whiskey and it just, it kind of tied in nicely. So we never had an issue with when they wrote stories or featured these athletes, they always mentioned the brand because it just kind of authentically tied itself in. I, I thought we would talk more about the Super Bowl and the Olympics, but here we are talking. I mean, we just had a nice little conversation, 10-minute conversation yes. about arm wrestling. So yeah. I'm yeah. not going to lie to you. I saw it in the notes. I didn't write it down, but I'm glad you did bring it up. I think that is incredible. And, and you bring that up. You know, there's, you, you've had some really cool successes, especially something like that, extremely small sport. It's very, very niche that you had this, you got a story on the cover of the Wall Street Journal, probably didn't think that was ever going to happen, especially for this sport. With that, though, and, you know, my, the, the way I was going to ask this question before you told that story was a little different, but were there any blunders or falls along the way? I mean, you've been doing this thing for almost 30 years. Are there some things that you almost kind of wish you could do a little bit different a second time around or after looking at it and seeing it being like, oh, we might not have went about that the the best possible way. Yeah. I mean, I, I think just, you know, I think a lot of it comes down to doing as much homework as you can. Um, fine tuning this angle, um, going to the right producer, the right editor, the right reporter, not just picking up the phone, at least in those days, picking up the phone and just calling, you know, the desk and saying, I've got a great story. Hang up, hang up. Right. I remember going back to, uh, 89. Yeah, I guess it was 89. Uh, I mentioned Fordham. Uh, part of the story was they were going into division back to division one, which was a good story. But then the other story, and I'm going to get my numbers wrong in this, so I apologize. But 89 was the, it might've been the, oh, I'm going to make this up 50th, 60th, somewhere in there anniversary of the first ever college football game on television. And it, and that college game was Fordham. So here was a great story, again, 50, 60, however many years later. And I never forget calling George Vesey at the New York Times, a legendary sports columnist, right? And I guess I finally pissed him off enough because the third time, I don't want to hear about this Fordham. I don't want to hear about this television ever. And I I don't know why I was set on, like, he was the guy I had to go to for this. Uh Uh, I guess because I thought he would like the story. But, you know, um, that's one where I, he didn't write the story, but it just goes back to a time where, okay, maybe I wasn't thinking it through correctly. Maybe he wasn't the right person to go to. Maybe I should have figured out another, another angler, another reporter. Uh, but I never forget getting yelled at on the phone um, and then basically throw, you know, with the phone being hung up on me because I pitched the story one too many times to him. Now, those were the days when you could get a reporter, a producer, editor in the newsroom, in the, you know, editorial. 
now, especially especially right now, but you know, so many folks work remotely or don't really have to report to an office. So you've got to find other ways to get to them. And you know, it may simply be an email, which I know may not be the most effective way. But those days, at least, you know, these individuals, these sports writers, sports editors, they actually worked in an office and many of them had an extension where you actually could call them directly and they would pick their phone up. I don't think that exists anymore. I don't think it's quite the case uh, now, but I'll, I'll lean on you for that information. And I apologize, we're a couple of minutes over time. So I hope you do have a few sure. more minutes for sure. me. Awesome, because we have it. Taylor was incredible. You were there for however many years. You worked there for so long that they actually made you a part owner of the company. So congratulations sure. on that. I mean, I think that's incredible. Over your 25 years there, how did you make sure that every time not that you showed up to work, but every time you were at one of these big events, you always made sure that you were on, especially in sports. You know, you have to show up every day. You have to give it your all. I'm sure certain days people phone it in, but how did you make sure that when you were there, you were on site, you were doing everything you had to do working those 18, 20, 22 hour days. How did you make sure you really not just got up, not just got up for it, but really made sure you gave it your all? Yeah. I, you know, one of my favorite, um, quotes it's not my quote but I, I've used it in at least two of my books and I, I say it all it's just you know success is a marathon um, success is not a sprint success to your point is not in a 20 plus day Olympic experience coming out the mm -hmm. first day real strong and then fading the next 19 days um, so it's you're absolutely right it's it's two things I think one is there's definitely an adrenaline adrenaline rush because you're not sleeping much at all you know, or you're getting to sleep at one, two in the morning, and getting back up at six, seven in the morning um, with, with that same mission that day. I'm here representing sponsors or brands, and I need to get to the media to tell the story. So I think part of it, there's a, definitely an adrenaline. I think there's a lot of pressure, or at least you feel pressure. I always felt pressure if I had to deliver day in and day out. Um, and so the Olympics is a good example of that, of, you know, even though the Olympics are over the course of, say, 14, 14, 14 plus days, you know, we were usually on site for about 21 days and, you know, that was 21 straight days. That wasn't a day off. It wasn't weekends off. It was 21 straight days of, you know, 7, 8, 7, 8 a.m. till midnight, 1 o'clock in the morning. And maybe you got to see an event or two, maybe. Um, but the event that uh, I didn't bring up, and I'll make it real quickly, is from 93 to about 2004 or 5, I also was heavily involved in the public relations and marketing for the Ironman Triathlon which uh, the, the world championship is held in Kona, Hawaii every year. Now, again, that was another event that I grew up on watching on Wide World of Sports and was always fascinated by and just every year watched it. I just loved it. You know, and in my mind, I never thought, boy, I, well, could I ever do an Ironman? Because I have run five marathons. So I do, I do run, bike, and swim a lot. Um, but never really thought about working on it. When we got the chance in 93 to uh, be the agency and then to go to Kona, Hawaii, um, that was an interesting one because with the time difference, your clock is completely off. So those days were a little bit different. Those days we actually started about 4 a.m. because we would do live shots back to New York with 7 a.m., 8 a.m. Today Show, Good Morning America. So you're up at 2, 3, 4 in the morning in Hawaii, and you're working again till you know, maybe not quite as late because, again, by the time you're done, the time zones are, are – you're, you know, you're, but – those were, uh, you know, and that trip was a shorter trip. That was about an eight-day trip. Even though the event was only one day, we were on board starting the Saturday or Sunday before working with media around the globe, which was also a nice new element for me was it wasn't just U.S. media, but it was, you know, we had athletes from Australia and Europe and South America. So my job, our team's job, was to generate media coverage around the globe 
which including setting up live interviews by phone or setting up live interviews via satellite. So yeah, I think you raise a great point there. It's, um, I always felt just a pressure to deliver. And I was, I'm a big believer in consistency, which I think you see in your greatest, you know, athletes of all kind, but you know, a baseball player who hits uh, 300, close to 400, consistently is doing that day in and day out. They didn't have a, uh, you know, a great week or two and then faded out. They, they consistently played their season at such a high level. And so I think that's, that's the key. And I think that's the key pretty much in any business is consistently delivering day in and day out. Doesn't mean you don't fail. Doesn't mean you don't take a step backwards, um, but you try to consistently you know, perform very well. Do your best every yeah. single day. And that's really all we can ask for. And I just, I'm really sorry, again, just a couple more points. I want to talk about your books and then I want to talk about sure. you being a professor at Rutgers, of course. Sure. Um, let's talk about the books first. So you wrote five different books with one coming out in, as of recording, relatively soon, we have engaging yeah. uh, Gen Z May in one. May. And as of recording, this will be, this will most likely be coming out in May. Okay. So what we can do is I can make sure to kind of line it up right with that sure. book release. If you'd like a little, little press, little press yeah. for you. I don't Absolutely. know. I appreciate that. Um, but you know, what, what is the reason for writing five? I'm on my first book right now and it should be, I think the first draft is going to be done in June-ish, I think. Um, and this process is crazy. So kudos to you for writing five of them. I mean, what was the want and the desire behind writing a book versus, and then five books? Yeah. Well, I think, again, going back to, you know, that, I hate to say that first sports writing job as a sophomore in high school, but I've always loved writing. I've always loved writing. Um, I've always loved research. Um, even when I was in college, you know, even though it was creative writing, one of the, one of my favorite classes was creative writing. Um, so the book was always something I had on my mind. I've stopped and started, uh, or excuse me, started and stopped a number of books. I had a book I wrote, uh, never published, of course. I think I barely got to the first chapter. I had a concept for a book that, uh, probably about 10 years, it was called, uh, running for office. And it was about this candidate who literally was going to run across the United States and run for president. But the way they were going to do it was literally run from town to town, kind of an old fashioned, you know, shaking hands. Way. And I got to, I think the first chapter and that, that was about it. And then the next book I had was actually called success is a marathon. And it was just going to be a chapter on people. Each chapter was going to be a, a person who was successful in life, successful in their career and just looking into what, how were they successful? Why were they successful? Similar to, you know, just conducting that interview um, didn't get too far with that one either, you know? Um, and so it wasn't until I got to Rutgers university and I, they brought me on board as a, uh, adjunct professor in 2013. And they had me teach a course called principles of public relations, just one course. And as I taught that in 2013, 2014, 2015, after every class, and then by email, students would ask me, how do I write my resume? How do I conduct a job interview? How do I conduct an interview on the phone versus in person? What should I do when I leave the interview? Should I be sending a thank you note? Should I be sending a thank you email? How do I can, uh, create a network? All these things. And I, as I kept asking, I said, well, they're seeking these answers. They're looking for these answers. I need to start turning. And I was answering them, but I said, let's convert the answers into lessons. And so um, this book right here, 101 Lessons They Never Taught You uh, in College, was really, was that book that was inspired by Rutgers students and it was the, a book all about the transition from college to career. Now, at universities, at Rutgers, there are tremendous career advisors, career counselors, career, all that. But there's also lots and lots of students, too. And so I think students are looking for information they can get anywhere they can, whether it's from a professor or a guest speaker or somebody else. So um, I, I don't know when the light bulb went off. I know there was a big light bulb. I might have been driving back from a class. I might have been leaving class. I said, all right, this is a great book. There's a book here. 
they seem to be want the answers. They want answers. They're either not finding them or not finding them in one place. Um, and so I just started writing these lessons. Now this book is a lot easier than probably the book you're writing because every lesson is a page, page and a half, and then I can go to the next lesson. So it's not like I'm putting together a, uh, either a biography or even a fictional story. It's literally just lesson, 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 lesson. The beauty of it is you can flip open the book anywhere and there's probably a lesson that can help you, especially if you're in your, your job hunt. Um, and then as I'm writing it, I'm thinking about the title and all that. And um, I like the idea of lessons they never taught you because it was just the idea of, you know, there are, there are lessons out there that go beyond college. And I had the original title was 100 Lessons. Sent it to the uh, editor to review. He came back and said, oh, by the way, you have 101 here. I said, that's actually better because it's like 101, you know, math mm -hmm. 101, English 101. So that 101 lessons thing became a theme for my next several books. Um, and then once I figured out, and again, I self-published these books, so it's not like I, I went to New York and walked the streets and went to a publisher and said, buy this book. Um, once I figured out, how do you self-publish? What's the formula for that? How does it all of a sudden appear on Amazon? I said, okay, now that I understand that, maybe there's some other books out there that we can explore. And so that's what happened. And so a um, few other books after that, as we talked about, really around, um, funny, the book that followed this was this, uh, this book went over so well and was so well received the next book was called 101 Lessons They Never Taught You in High School About Going to College. And all I did was I sent an email. Again, light bulb went off one day. It's not like I always plan these things. I mean, there's somewhere along the line, it just hits you. And I, you know, I have ideas, can't see in my office here, but I have ideas on a pad here, many ideas, including one for a, a Gen Z television network that I'm thinking about. Um, but the next one was, again, high school to college. So I thought, I have all these great students, plus students around the country who've reached out to me. I sent a simple email out to all these students, hundreds of them, what one lesson would you give a high school senior going to college? It's all said, within seconds, I had emails, 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 emails. Most of the emails said, never skip class. Um, but there were a lot, many, many more. And that book, uh, that book then came out probably a year and a half or so later. And it was, again, geared more towards high school seniors going to college. So um, yeah, the books have been fun. Uh, as you mentioned, the most recent book is called Engaging Gen Z. You know, having spent 25 plus years in marketing public relations, we were always focusing on consumer segments. And for the last 10 or 15 years, most brands have been focusing on millennials. Makes sense. But as we were getting into um, 2018, 2019, and I was teaching these Gen Zers, because again, the official first year of Gen Zers was 1997. So your oldest Gen Zers now have just started work. Many are in college, many are in high school, some are in elementary school. Um, I thought, well, Gen Z is coming after millennials. Maybe not now, maybe not tomorrow, but come 2020, 21, 22, I have a feeling beyond Gen Z is going to become the focus for these marketers, these brands. So why not kind of write the book on them now? And so that first book was called uh, Decoding Gen Z. And it was really more about what is Gen Z doing on their phone all day? What social media channels? Do they read newspapers? Of course they don't, but those kind of questions. Do they watch traditional TV? No, they don't. Do they listen to radio? Sort of. They love podcasts, by the way. Love podcasts. Um, because it's content they can download and listen to on their time, wherever they are, whenever they want to, whether they're commuting to the city for an internship or walking across campus. And... Um, I'm really, really glad I wrote that book because that decoding Gen Z book has led to a lot of um, opportunities, speaking engagements around the country, even professional sports leagues and teams. Last summer, I was honored when the ECHL, which is the uh, minor leagues of uh, the NHL, 
said, would you come to Las Vegas to our summer meetings and, and deliver a Gen Z speech to all 400 team presidents, team owners, and their staffs of our 28, 29, 30 teams? And I said, me? Sure. <laughs> and went out there and did that. But it was really because, again, the research went in the book and the, the book that came out. So the follow-up to Decoding Gen Z is called Engaging Gen Z and slightly different. We still talk a little bit about their favorite channels, the fact that they over-index on YouTube and Instagram and Snapchat. But it's more about if you're a sports team, not just sports team, but if you're a brand, a company, a sports team, they don't respond to traditional marketing advertising. So how do I engage them? How do I get them to come to my sports event? My, uh, how do I get them to interact with my brand? And so it's more about that idea of engaging this generation um, as a follow-up to decoding Jensen. And I love that you're, as you said, you saw that Gen Z's coming. I've, I'm a millennial. You know, I hate the word because it comes with so many negative connotations for whatever reason, maybe just because I've been called it my whole life. Yeah. But I feel like we've been talked about since I was probably like 14 years old. Yeah. And I'm almost 30 now, as weird as that is to say. But they keep talking about us like we're, you know, 20. It's like, we're not 20 anymore, guys. Like, we're older. We, so I know a lot of people that have kids now. Like, we're not the same as you thought before. Um, so I think it's very smart on your part. And it's also, I, I love to see people who not you did not you didn't reinvent yourself but there are so many people in your position that easily could have said i know what to do i've been doing it for so long i don't need to do any of this it, it's going to work in some capacity and just kind of kept rolling on but instead you decided to write multiple books about this generation that is pretty far from you no, no yeah. offense or anything oh, but, no, no. Uh, you know like relatively far from from where you are and and really learn who they are and what they're about so that way you can apply it in your every day and, and make sure that people can understand it. And that makes you the expert on this because you've been writing books about it for literally years now. Yeah, I, I think to your point, I think there is a credibility factor. I think in this case, I spent 25 plus years again, and we'll call it marketing. But for seven years now, I've been interacting, collaborating and teaching Gen Zers day in and day out. And as I like to say, I teach them about marketing. They teach me about what's trending. They teach me about what, uh, what content is most engaging to them, what channels are most engaging. So I'm learning every single day. If I wasn't in this role of teaching at Rutgers University, there's no way I'm writing any of these books about Gen Z. Because, But the fact that I'm with them every day, um, even today, obviously classes are, are remote. And But I'll have, by day's end here, I'll have 15, 20 emails from students about, can you help me with my resume? Um, uh, try to get interviews for jobs. And so we'll converse by email, but most likely we'll converse by phone and we'll, we'll strategize and collaborate together. So that I think adds that element of credibility because I'm, I'm actually living with them, you know, immersing myself in their, in their, um, in their culture. Um, so yeah, it's, it's fascinating. It's fun. And, and I love it. Just think of how far you came, right? You used to cut out clippings and, and put them through a copy machine. Try to tell someone, one of your kids in your class to do that now. First, they probably wouldn't know what clippings were, and then they probably wouldn't know how to use a copy machine. Um, and then the last thing, again, you brought it up, professor at Rutgers. First, let me say thank you. I always appreciate teachers in any capacity. Um, I think it's criminally underpaid, and that's a whole other conversation that I don't obviously know enough about to make that um, you know type of uh, change in the world, but I can at least say it and hopefully other people can agree with me. So I really do appreciate it. And the fact that you're willing to teach, you're willing to take all this expertise that you've learned, as you said, over, you know, 25 years in marketing, public relations and media and help share those experiences like you did today with us. Um, but instead you get to do that with people 
on a weekly basis for many more hours than the hour and 10, 15 minutes that I got with you today. So I just really do want to say thank you there. And I guess, you know, quickly, like what was the reason behind wanting to become a, a professor, especially at your alma mater? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, um, I told someone last week, you know, I, I graduated from Rutgers in 1989. I got married there in 1991 at the historic Kirkpatrick Chapel, right on the old Queens campus. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been asked throughout the years to kind of come back and just guest, guest lecture, guest speak. And there was some point in, uh, I guess, 20, close to 2013, when in my mind, I'm like, you know, I really would love to give back. And that was all it was about. It was just giving back. It was, you know, I had a solid 20, 25 years career. I just want to give back my learnings, my insights, just like when people helped me when I was a student at Rutgers to get my first internship, my first job. And honestly, that was the main focus and still is the main focus. It's all about giving back and helping the students, helping today's students. And just coincidentally, around that time, I got a call and they said, you know, we're going to um, add a few public relations courses at the Rutgers University School of Communication Information. Would you be interested? And I said, absolutely. I've never taught a course. I have guest lecture, but I've never taught a course. Went in for a meeting, had a great meeting. I think they called a week later and said, we'd like to have you teach one course. And uh, it was even more rewarding than I ever anticipated. That one course, fall of September of 2013, I, uh, I left class every day just energized, inspired, excited. Again, excited by this next generation, excited by their future, excited by the fact that I think I could help them in the class, but outside the class, making connections in my network. Um, and so 2013, you know, one class turned to two, turned to three over the years. And then uh, I was honored in 2019 that, again, the Rutgers University School of Communication Information asked if um, I would be a full-time professor of practice in public relations, which means I don't have a PhD. What they're asking me to do is can I leverage my 25 plus years in public relations and marketing and bring that to the university? So one, I, I appreciate that they see great value in that. Um, and two, that they even gave me the opportunity to do it. I every day thank, thank I'm so thankful to be able to do it. And then um, again, the ability to cl- collaborate with today's students. Um, you know, I want them to succeed in the classroom. I want them to succeed beyond the classroom. And so every day of the week, seven days a week, I don't take a day off from making connections, helping them make connections. The first day of class every semester, I ask the same thing. So let's go around, let's introduce ourselves. I said, we all want to get to know each other. What I want to know about you is what are your passions? What do you love? Sports, music, whatever. And where do you think you want to take that? Maybe into social media, maybe into journalism, broadcasting, public relations, marketing. And I take detailed notes. And as we go through the semester, I try to then make connections. So if someone says music marketing, great. I'm going to call the three or four or five or six people I know in music marketing. I'm going to set you up with phone calls. I'm going to figure out how to get you an internship or a job. And so the greatest reward for me, the ultimate reward for me, is when a former student, either as they're graduating or even two, three, four years later, emails me and says, hey, that connection you made, I just got the job. Man, that's it. That's no amount of money. Um, there's nothing worth more than that. That, that to me is the old, like when they say, thank you, you know, if it wasn't for you, I wouldn't be in this position where now I'm going to work for this agency or this company. So that's ultimately, that's why I do it. Um, just, I, I want to give back and give value and, and leverage 30 years of relationships, 30 years of experience and help, you know, class of 2020, class of 21 and beyond 
uh, over the next, you know, however many years, because uh, I think at this point in my career, that's, that's the role I should be playing. And that is incredible. And I appreciate people like you, Mark, doing that kind of stuff. I try to make connections too, but you've been making connections a little longer than I've been alive. So hopefully one day I'll have the Rolodex you do. That's right. You and I are, we always collaborate and help each other connect with people. So we are here and that's what we're trying to do, man. So Mark, thank you so much. I know we went a couple minutes over time, but you had so many good stories and I apologize. I couldn't cut you off at any point. So Mark Beal, assistant professor of practice and public relations in the Rutgers School of Communications and Information, author of five books. All of those notes will be all the book um, links will be in the show notes over 25 years at Taylor, number one ranked public relations firms in sports. Mark, sincerely, sincerely appreciate your time today. Michael, thank you. One last note. I listened to a lot of your podcasts. Your style, your interview style is so natural, but so engaging. And that's what makes all your interviews so great is you, you bring the most out of your, the folks you interview. So thank you very much. No, thank you, Mark. I appreciate that. Thank you so much for listening to this episode with Mark. As I said, absolutely incredible guy. So much fun to talk to and so much insight and wisdom. And that's exactly why I do this because I get to have incredible people like him on this show that everybody out there listening can learn from. Everything is in the show notes as always. Please check it out. All of Mark's books, all of his socials, everything will be there so you guys can check out any of that, including the newest book that just came out. Please also make sure to give us a five-star review if you are listening anywhere. But Really, really, if you're listening on Apple or iTunes, those are the most important five-star reviews because about 80% of the people that listen to this show are listening through Apples and iTunes. So thank you all so much for your time. It's the only thing we don't get more of, and I appreciate you giving me some of yours. So I hope you make it a wonderful day.